Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. You guys go ahead and be seated for me. Welcome to Horizon West Church. And uh, my hope for today, thank you, Patrick. Yeah, perfect. My hope for today is that you leave uh, with that kind of ringing in your ears. We're going to get to sing that again, but the reality is God keeps hope alive. And someone said, hope is the oxygen for our souls. There are people literally dying for a lack of hope. We want you to know that there's reason for hope because Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords this morning and every morning. Hey, uh, a real quick word to those of you who are men in the room. You heard Marcy uh, encourage you ladies, October 8th. We want you to be there. It's going to be an awesome kind of kickoff event for our women's ministry. Uh, But guys, I'm not going to be at that event. I will be at the Better Man event this Saturday. Uh, You've heard us talk about it. If you haven't yet registered, I want to encourage you to go on to firstorlando.com slash BME, or you can go to their events page, but you can register there. Here's the deal we're making with all First Orlando campuses is, man, we get a $15 discount, which is half off to attend the event. We can also go to the dinner beforehand for $15. So for $30, which is the price of admission, you're going to get that dinner and also the event. I'll be there several. In fact, I think all of our male staff are going to be there this Saturday. And so I want to encourage you men to go ahead and register for the event. There's still room to do that uh, there as well. Uh, with that, I want to do this. I want to pray um, again, and we're going to ask God to just go before us. Uh, we're going to tackle some tough subjects in the Word today, so let's ask Him to give us wisdom as we do that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your Word, and God, thank You for the guardrails that it gives us to understand uh, who You are, who we are, what our need is of You. Um, God, we also thank You more than anything for the gift of Jesus. Um, God, that the one who deserved not to go to the cross is the one who did it in our place. And God, that's the, that's the anthem this morning. That's our hope this morning and every morning. We pray that you go before us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today we come to the penultimate message in the series. If that word doesn't mean anything to you, this is the second to last of our Living with the End in Mind series. And I told you earlier, uh, a few weeks ago, there were two messages that I was not looking forward to. This is the one I was least excited to preach, okay? So be praying for me, y'all. I was not uh, looking forward to it. I will say that in preparation for the message I'm going to share this morning, I, I discovered or maybe uncovered a truth, at least it's my hypothesis, that the reason that, the, that people are, are reluctant to grapple with the end times, the reason that people are reluctant to tackle issues in Revelation might have less to do with the fact that it feels irrelevant or strange and more to do with something else. We're going to talk about the something else today. If you're a fan of Talladega Nights, the movie, you might remember a scene where Ricky Bobby is trying to pray before a dinner of, I think, Taco Bell and KFC, and he keeps getting interrupted. And this, this prayer devolves into a conversation between the family and friends about the Jesus version that they like best. One says, I like to think of Jesus as a ninja. His friend says, you know, I've always pictured Jesus as wearing a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I'm kind of formal, but I like to party too. 
And Ricky says, my favorite is the little baby Jesus Christmas version. And it's a hilarious scene. I can't show it because of copyright issues, and I probably shouldn't anyway. (laughs) But there's a truth here that a lot of us, though we might not put it in those words, there's a version of Jesus that we like. The little baby Jesus in the manger who never ruffles anybody's feathers. The one one who's healing people and, and receiving children, and all of those are true pictures of Jesus. But let me give you another one. Revelation Chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, Jesus reveals himself in this way. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of those lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What a unique and different picture of Jesus we see in Revelation. We began to grapple with this picture of Jesus last week when we talked about the return of Christ. Now I want to show you what happens when Christ returns. This is the chart that we've been using, and we're going to uh, refer to this twice this morning, both in kind of quick succession. Uh, We're actually going to kind of jump past, go ahead and throw that chart up for me there. We're actually going to kind of jump past the thousand-year reign of Jesus. I may or may not touch on that next week, but what we are going to deal with today is that next aspect of what happens. I I want to first show you the words that are underneath those pictures, the word spiritual war, spiritual war. The the reality that we find in the Bible is that history is the story of a cosmic struggle between God and one that the Hebrew calls Hasatan, the Satan, the devil. So it's a spiritual war primarily going on between God and the forces of good, Satan and the forces of evil, and that war, that struggle spills into our earth and our humanity in a place called the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. It is not primarily our lives, a a struggle between people. Our politicians would have us believe that. The reality is what we see in our world is a struggle between God and the Satan. It is a spiritual war, and it has spilled into our world. About a week and a half ago, my wife and I watched the Netflix documentary, Untold Malice at the Palace. Have any of you guys watched this yet? If you remember the Malice at the Palace, I believe it was 2004, The Detroit Pistons and the Indiana Pacers were playing a basketball game. (laughs) By the end of the night, many people had been arrested. People were being taken out on stretchers because what happened was that what was happening on the court between the players riled up the fans so much that one fan ignorantly threw a beer or something that hit a player in the face. And before you knew it, players were in the stands Uh, fans were on the court, punches were being thrown. It was an absolute melee. And it was played at the Palace in Auburn Hills in Detroit, so it became known as the Malice in the Palace. The Bible, friends, is the record of a spiritual war that spilled into the world, and it's told through the lens of humanity. So what what happens is we begin to think that we, (laughs) it's all about us. No, no, no. It's about the players on the court, but now we're engaged because of sin in this spiritual war. Let me give you examples of this reality that I'm talking about. 
Many would frame the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt as a struggle between Moses and Pharaoh. It was not a struggle between Moses and Pharaoh. That was a struggle between Yahweh, the God of Moses, and the so-called gods of Egypt. And so these, these volleys back and forth, these plagues, these warnings, this is gods doing war and it's playing out in the realm of people. Uh, let me give you another one. Mount Carmel. You might remember where Elijah, the prophet of God, calls down fire from heaven. And the prophets of Baal are over here. And, and it's not primarily one Elijah versus these 700 or so prophets of Baal. What it is is a, a war between the God who is true and the gods who are not. And finally, in Jesus' earthly ministry, we see this over and over and over again. He's, he's a physical man living in a physical world, but there's this spiritual reality going on behind him. One of the very interesting pictures of this is, is when uh, Peter has just made this incredible declaration. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, well done, Peter. This was revealed to you by my Father. And then Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. And he says, oh, by the way, Jesus, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Anybody ever think that was a little harsh? It's like, man, cut the guys some slack. But Jesus recognized that behind the, the temptation to avoid his suffering and death was an enemy called Satan who wanted to distract him from his mission. He said, Peter, this isn't, this isn't you. You're not the one who said that great statement. That was the father. And you're not the one saying this, this stupid thing either. That's the devil. There's spiritual reality taking place in our world. So the struggle that we see in life, and it is a struggle, death, disease, sin, brokenness, war, these are simply manifestations of the spiritual struggle happening in and around us. It's why Paul said to the Ephesian church, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, powers, spiritual authority in the heavenly realms, and against the principalities of this dark world. That's what's happening. Spiritual war undergirding it all. Throw that chart up one more time. I, I told you I'm going to kind of skip over that 1,000 year reign of Jesus um, and, and perhaps touch on it briefly next week. But what we're going to do today is we're going to go to, uh, you'll see this kind of throne with the exits on it. We're, we're going we're to deal with today what is called in scripture the final judgment specifically, more broadly, we're just going to deal with this issue of God's judgment. And this is my hunch. Let me close the loop that I started earlier. My hunch is that the main reason that most modern American pastors and churches don't like to talk about Revelation in the end times is because there's no way to address it without addressing this. And we'd rather not talk about a God of judgment, right? We'd rather just serve really good coffee <laughs> Make sure the AC is working. It's not perfectly, by the way, and that's not always the case. We'd rather just create a, a comfortable environment. But if we're going to be true to the Bible, we've got to walk right through what it teaches about this very subject. So we're going to go to uh, Matthew chapter 24. I want to read uh, just a few verses here. Matthew 24, 45 through 51. This has been our text. I'm not, I'm not going out of the text to try to get this subject in it. I'm hitting it head on. So verse 45 of Matthew 24, it says this. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master sets over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whose master will find him doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed 
And so he begins to beat his fellow servants and he eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour that he does not know and he will cut him to pieces, put him with the hypocrites and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is going to continue into Matthew 25. Now remember, Jesus isn't turning the page going, okay, now I'm in Matthew 25. He's just teaching And it's collected for us in these two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. And it might be interesting to you to know that more than half of Jesus' teaching on the end times in this passage deals with the issue of judgment. This is why, friends, while I would rather not have to deal with it, I can't be both true to the word and sidestep the issue. So what we'll do today is we'll talk about three surprising realities of God's judgment. Here's the first one. It is demonstrated throughout scripture. You might recall in Genesis chapter 3, this is where I told you that the spiritual war spills over into humanity. Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of uh, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin enters the world. And do you remember that God comes behind that with some judgments? He says to the serpent, you're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to lick the dust of the earth. And one day the woman's just going to crush your head says to the man, he says, you're going to have toil in labor. Now you need to know that work is a good gift of God, but working in a hundred degree heat with a hundred percent humidity this afternoon will not be, right? Like work is good, but, but it says, hey, but, but men for you, it's going to be, it's going to be toilsome. You're going to have thorn bushes cutting you. You're going to be sweating. You're going to be hot. You're going to be thirsty. It's not going to be good labor. And he says to the women, I'm going to increase your pains in childbirth. So men, When you're mowing the lawn this afternoon in 100 degree heat with 100% humidity, count your blessings. You ain't gotta have kids. Like, you're good. We can deal with it. But but these judgments come. It's an immediate consequence of the sin of the man and the woman. And then we just see it happening over and over. Genesis chapter 6, the flood and God saves Noah and his family. Exodus, I already talked about the 10 plagues that come on Egypt. Then the law is given and for every law there is a, if you do this or if you fail to do this, there is a punishment. Then we see the prophets. I'll give you just one example. Joel chapter 1 verse 15, the day of the Lord is near, the day when destruction comes from the Almighty. How terrible that day will be. So, so we see this playing out over and over again. And somebody's going to raise this objection. Chris, everything you just talked about is Old Testament. All right, let's go to New Testament. In the New Testament, we see a couple named Ananias and Sapphira lying to the disciples in a church service and immediately dropping dead. Then we see Herod failing to, to give God glory and he falls over dead and he's eaten by worms. We see the teachings of Jesus, the warnings that that those who don't do the the will of the Father will hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. And then we come to quite possibly the most frightening verses in all of the Bible. It's in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of just two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands 
of the living God. So the reason I say it is a surprising reality that God's judgment is throughout Scripture is because what we find is that the most severe of God's judgments are not found in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Meaning it's not a past tense kind of thing, but rather a future tense thing. That's why in Revelation 15 and 16, we see these seven bowls of wrath being poured out. It's why we get to Revelation chapter 20 and we see this thing of final judgment. Let's take a minute to look at those verses. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. John says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the, death who, the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Oof. Anybody want to just kind of take a scissors and just kind of cut that out? It's like, now it's not. Let's just stay with tuxedo wearing Jesus, right? Little baby in the manger. I want to briefly touch on three prevailing views that answer the question, what happens to those who have rejected the reign of Jesus in their lives? Those who have not submitted uh, to the reign of Christ, what happens to them? Three basic views, and, and we'll pass through this quickly. One is a term that's called Christian universalism. This is an attempt to, uh, to reconcile the, the judgments of God with kind of this idea that actually in the end everybody gets saved. And so you've got these ideas about, you know, people maybe even after they die, they get a second chance, like all of these kind of things. Sounds awesome. The problem is it's not found anywhere in the Bible that I can tell. Okay? This idea that, that when Jesus died, he saved everybody whether they wanted it or not. I just find no scriptural basis for that. So we're going to leave that one to the side. Two others. One, uh, the eternal, that, that those who reject Jesus experience eternal conscious torment in a place called hell. Uh, this has been the prevailing view of evangelicals over the course of history. It might surprise you to know this is the view of the, the church and denomination we're affiliated with. The, the other view is what's called annihilationism, that at this final judgment, what God does is he basically destroys those who are evil, those who have rejected the good news of the gospel, are destroyed. What I will just say is, is this, the thing I think most of us, if not all of us, can agree on, is that when God comes and sets up his good kingdom, those who don't want to be a part of it are not. <laughs> like, they are shut out, they are told depart, they are judged for failing to submit their lives to God. Okay, again, a harsh reality, but it's what we see in the Bible. Someone asked me a question that I want to answer. I think it's a fair question and one that's deserving of an answer. They said, isn't this a fear-based way to talk about God? Like, isn't this manipulating people with fear? And, and I, I, I immediately thought this, and I want to answer this with a metaphor. Imagine that it's, uh, what would 12 years from now be? 2034, my son is graduating high school. He's 18 years old. I finally allowed him the keys to my car. So he and I are going on a long road trip together. 
In, in my little fantasy, we're going to see every baseball stadium in America, but, but regardless, it doesn't matter. We're on a road trip. And imagine my son is driving, and we're, we're maybe going through the Appalachian Mountains at this point in the journey, and my son is going way too fast on his cell phone and not paying attention to the fact that there's signs saying, don't proceed, turn back, narrow road. I'm going to say, hey, Jonah, slow down and give me your phone. If he doesn't do those things, I'm going to wrestle the phone away from him and say, son, slow down or I'm taking over the vehicle. If he fails to do any of that, there is a very real possibility that he drives our vehicle off the edge of a cliff and our trip is over. Now, my desire in going on the trip is not to not fall off a cliff. My desire is to spend time with my son, but I can't do that if he's recklessly ignoring every warning that I put before him. Friends, the Bible doesn't contain the judgment of God because God loves to judge people. It contains it because without repentance, there can be no relationship with God. And he wants your heart. He wants you in the vehicle. He wants to spend time with you. It's about the journey, but we don't get the journey if we get the judgment. And so I must say at this juncture that God's judgment is an unavoidable reality of both Old and New Testament. It is demonstrated throughout Scripture. But not only that, number two, it is validated by personal experience. Last Sunday was the anniversary of 9-11, the 21-year anniversary. If you were alive and old enough, you remember this kind of immediate reaction that we all had, which was, go get them. Like, don't let this injustice prevail. Find the terrorists who, who, who knocked down the buildings. Find the ones who, who put the planes into the Pentagon. Like, like, get those people. Hold them accountable. We cried out as a nation and almost worldwide for justice to be served for those individuals. A few years later, a man named Bernie Madoff swindled more than $64 billion away from people who had trusted him with their investments. Many of those older people who lost everything they had worked for and almost to a person, the nation said, hold him accountable. Judge him. Don't let him off the hook. Let me ask the question, where does this sense of justice or this sense of right and wrong come from? And the answer is, it's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We respond in that way because that's the way God responds to injustice and evil as well. And so the, the irony is that people reject God based on these judgment passages in the Bible, but those are the very revelation, not that God is evil, but that he's good. No one would have honored or respected a judge who stood before terrorists who had killed thousands of people and said, you know what, guys, you seem like good people. We're going to let this one slide. Don't do it again. Or said to Bernie Madoff, you know what, man, you're, you're really smart. We kind of need you in the economic uh, sector, so, so just don't do this again. We want a judge who is just. We, we want a judge who knows how to bring justice. God is a God of judgment because he's a God of justice. But here's where the rubber meets the road for us. Most people would say, well, yes, Osama bin Laden deserves judgment. And yes, Bernie Madoff deserves, deserves judgment. But not me. I'm not that bad. I, I, like, you know, I give to charities. I help old women cross the street. I'm a good guy. <laughs> and, and we use this uh, scale. You've been wondering where this was going to come in for a while, right? 
This proverbial scale where we, we put our good deeds on one side and our, our bad on the other and we go, as long as there's more good than evil, you've all heard this, right? As long as I do more good, so like if I sinned last night, I should put an extra 10 in the offering today. Well, I want to encourage you to do that whether or not you sinned last <laughs> night, but that's irrelevant. And, and here's what we do. We become the judges. I know how to settle my accounts. I did this sin so, that, so I buy my way out. And this framework is a fundamental misunderstanding in at least two parts. Number one, it fundamentally misunderstands who God is. Because God is not just a little more good than evil. You know what Isaiah says, the prophet Isaiah in, in chapter 5 verse 16? The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. He is perfection. Sin cannot dwell in his presence. God isn't looking to go, well, as long as your good deeds outweigh your evil. No, no, no. He's saying the only way to be in my presence is for sin to be dealt with, for you to be made holy in the way that I am holy. So it misunderstands who he is. And secondly, it misunderstands who we are. I... I, wrestled with whether or not to do this because I never want to seem like I'm casting judgment on another church and I'm sure these are good churches but there's a couple things that I've seen I just go I'm not sure that that's exactly right one of those is on I-4 if you're headed toward uh, Sanford you you see it might still be there I haven't seen it in a year or so there's a massive billboard it says God is not angry and every time I pass it I go are you sure (laughs) is he looking at what I'm looking at Now, I get the sentiment because for many generations in the American church especially, man, we had guys pounding pulpits and the hellfire and brimstone. We said, no, 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 God loves you. Yes, he does love you. Is it possible that he both loves you and is angry about the world that we've tarnished, the good world he created? I I won't share the other one because it's a church closer to us, so I'm going to leave that one out. But um, that has a a slogan. Anyway, Here's what I want you to know that's so important that you understand. Both sides of this. Because what we do is we swing the pendulum. It's all judgment. And then we're like, no, 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 there's salvation. And all of a sudden we have a Jesus who doesn't rescue us from anything. The reality is, yes, you are loved by God, created in his image. Loved so much that he would send his son, his perfect son, Jesus, to a cross to redeem you. You are loved by God. But you... And by you, I mean every man, woman, and child ever created was also endowed with incredible power and entrusted with dominion over the earth. See, we talk about God like like he's this grandfather with his little grandbabies and we can do no wrong in his eyes, you know? Like he just bounces us on his knee and just gives us candy. But when I look at Genesis 1, I see God going, hey, Adam, Eve, humanity, you're in charge. Steward it well. Care for my earth. Do what is right. Do what is just. Care for this world the way that I would if I was in your position. And when the man and the woman defied the dominion of God and chose to basically steal the dominion for themselves, he continued to let them have it. Think about that. God didn't go, well, you messed it up. I'm I'm taking over. No, no, no. He continued to let mankind have dominion. And it wasn't long before murder, the very children of Adam and Eve, before all kinds of, of wickedness and evil that would even be not appropriate to talk about, 
came flooding into the world because each of us chose our dominion over God's. That is the issue. That, that, is, the, that is the core reality of humanity. Our refusal to submit our lives to God is an exercise in rival dominion. No matter how many good deeds we've done, no, no matter how, how well we think of ourselves, if we don't submit to God, then we have wrested control from him. And so C.S. Lewis said this, it is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. The last judgment, I believe, will be God's final uh, nipping in the bud, if you will, of all that is evil, all that defies his goodness, so that there's not a square inch of the universe where he is not welcome. That's what judgment is. And here's the third and final point, and I, I, I hope you know we were going to get here. This is the good news. This is why we sing, You Keep Hope Alive. The third surprising reality of God's judgment is that it is satisfied in Jesus. If you were to, to read Old Testament references to the wrath of God or the judgment of God, many of them, uh, I, I think I, no, I didn't write those down. Many of them, I think Ezekiel, Jeremiah, several of them, they refer to it in this way. They talk about the cup of God's judgment. They talk about drinking the wrath of God, that the enemies of God will be made to drink of the cup of his judgment. Now, keep that in mind and picture Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane before he's going to the cross. He's on his knees and he says, Father, if there's any way other than this, let this, what? Cup be taken from me. What is Jesus referring to? He's referring to the cup of the judgment of God. And so Jesus prays this prayer. He says, but Father, if, it's, if there is no other way, I will drink that cup. I will let your will be done and not mine. And so on the cross, Jesus drinks the cup of the judgment of God. Can I dispel one myth for you? I see it nowhere in the Bible. Many of us grew up with this idea because it was in a song, I think, that as Jesus was being crucified, the Father turned his face away because the Father can't look on sin. You ever, anybody heard that? Can I submit to you that the Father did not turn his face away from Jesus? The Father turned his attention fully on Jesus and his judgment was fully poured out at the cross. So in Jesus from the cross, in the midst of being uh, destroyed as a, as a man, being beaten beyond recognition, being crucified, bleeding out and suffocating. When Jesus says with arms stretch, stretched out, it is finished. It's much like when your child drinks their medicine and goes, all done. I didn't like it, but I did it. It's gone. I'm, I'm finished. I drank the medicine. The scripture is clear that Jesus drank fully the cup of the judgment of God for us. We've been saved from his judgment, saved from bondage to sin, saved from ourselves. Friends, this is the good news. This is the good news. Not, not Jesus came to make your life a little better. Not, not Jesus came to, to help your kids get into the best universities. Not Jesus came so you could live in a comfortable house and drive a nice car. Jesus came to rescue you from the judgment of an almighty and righteous God. And he drank it fully. Scripture says in uh, 1 Corinthians, or rather 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us so that in him we become the righteousness of God. Jesus drank the cup that we deserved, and we in turn get to drink a different cup. This morning, we're going to close the message portion with the Lord's Supper. As you came in today, you should have received uh, uh, the elements for the Lord's Supper. Um, John, I'm going to need one of those as well if you would bring that up. If you did not, or Patrick, thank you, if you did not get one of these and want to participate, would you slip your hand up and the guys will come around to, to help you get that? For those that, that don't know what we're about to do or this doesn't make sense, let me really quickly tell you that when Jesus was on his second to final night, the night before he was sent to the cross, Scripture says that he gathered with the disciples for what was called the last meal or the last supper. And there he took bread and broke it and said to them, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this whenever you do it in remembrance of me. I want to encourage you in this way. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're one who's submitted to the lordship and the reign of Jesus in your life, take and eat this remembering that it's only because of the death of Jesus. And if you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've not yet submitted to God through the good news of the gospel, either let this bread and cup pass or take it for the first time as your response to say, God, I haven't before, but this now in this moment, I'm receiving you for my salvation. If that's you or if you're already a follower of Jesus, would you take and eat? The Apostle Paul tells us that after they'd eaten the bread, Jesus took the cup. I told you we get to drink a different cup, right? Not the cup of God's judgment. Jesus, lifting that cup up to his disciples, said, This cup is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for you. Poured out to save you. Poured out to rescue you from the judgment of God. The taste isn't sour, it's sweet. Because Jesus took the other cup. And so we take Christians, we take believers, remembering that the only way we have entrance to heaven, the only way we have a relationship with God is because one named Jesus poured out his blood at the cross. We drink and remember him. God, we thank you for all that Jesus accomplished for us. God, it's not the end of the journey. It's not like now we're saved and so everything's taken care of. Like, Lord, you saved us for the journey. You saved us to become your children. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God. Lord, would you let us live as your sons and daughters? Would you let us proclaim that good news message of the risen Jesus to a world that desperately needs hope? You are our reason. You're the reason we have hope. We praise you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.